0: Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Jennifer Lina, who's an Associate Professor of Arts Administration at Teachers College Columbia University, about her new book entitled Discriminating Tastes and the Expansion of the Arts. So welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. I'm really happy to be here.
0: And it's great to have you on. Uh, This is a great book. I really enjoyed reading it. Uh, It's both really kind of uh, interesting. It's a great read. And uh, it's a serious bit of of sociological uh, work around arts and culture in America. And, and I guess the place to kind of start with it is where did the book kind of come from? How does it fit in with your, your sort of thought more generally?
1: Well, it's very kind of you to pay me that compliment. You're the first person I've spoken to that wasn't you know, on staff, as it were, helping me create the book that's read it. So I'm very pleased that wow. you liked it. Uh, that's a new author speaking nervously about her work. Um, <laughs> the book came from two different... Um, sort of threads or narratives in my life that um, bumped into each other at an auspicious moment. So the truth is, is that I started working on this project before I worked on my first book uh, on musical genres. And um, I put it aside in order to do other things and came back to it later. The original impulse was inspired by my dissertation research, which was on rap music. And I had given a lot of thought While I was doing that work and doing presentations associated with it about my position within the academy, essentially that I was a white woman uh, getting her PhD at an elite institution who had gotten encouragement, maybe not full-throated encouragement, to study rap music while my uh, African-American peers had not. They had been actively discouraged. And so I'd been thinking a lot about the privileges associated with whiteness when it comes to research projects on culture. And so I started working on a book on slumming, using the concept of slumming as kind of a metaphor for the ways in which not just academics, but people with privilege around the world have used that privilege and the money that they have associated with it to gain access to the cultures of people from very different social backgrounds. Uh slumming is, of course, an actual historical phenomenon where people would take tours to, quote unquote, slum neighborhoods in order to see how the other half lives. And this is associated with reformers like Jacob Rees and sociologists at the time, uh, still maybe even. And um, uh, so, you know, I was writing the book about that and um, then I paused on it and in the meanwhile had become really frustrated with the research on cultural taste. So a very popular and important finding in the last 20 years is that elite people, college educated people have more varied cultural tastes than before. You know, our grandparents and great grandparents, um, are, you know, fans of opera or classical music, but today's elites tend to also enjoy, you know, rock music and motorcycles and tattoos. So, um, The problem is, is that sociologists weren't really picking up on exactly what elites were using because our social surveys ask people questions at such a broad level, like, do you like rock music? And that wasn't really helping us to understand the fact that, you know, we all know from observation that you just don't like things indiscriminately. Very few people like all rock music. And the same is true of elites. And so I was trying to kind of... um, steer the project toward a better understanding of how we pick and choose the specific culture that we like, and um, correspondingly how that shapes what kind of a person we think we are. So it's at that moment that the, the work with slumming kind of dovetailed and produced the book we have today.
0: I see. You mentioned rap music, and that makes me think of the start of the book and this idea of, of American art, and I suppose... Um, early on in the book, you're, you're more thinking of, um, I guess, sort of more established, whether you'd call them, you know, elite or classical arts, highbrow, whatever sort of term, rather than something like rap. But, but, but obviously, um, rap is one of those things like jazz that gets talked about as a uniquely sort of American art form. And, and this term, American art, I think runs right the way through the book. Um, as a kind of key concept. So I wonder if you could sort of talk me through it, talk me through what what this kind of idea is and where it relates to the, the book's story of the evolution of these particular American art forms.
1: Sure. So, you know, I don't think that I have a very technical definition of art. I'm really trying to understand how other people have defined it, how it's been constituted through use rather than through, say, my own decision making. But I needed to focus the study on the United States because this phenomenon of omnivorousness that I just spoke about, it's been found in virtually every country in the United States where somebody has attempted to find it. And so it was really important for the purpose of the project to narrow my focus to a single country. And I'm really glad that I did because a lot of the, the The features, the motivations for producing American art are domestically uh, generated. So the laws and regulations that we have here are often very different than even that of our peer countries like Great Britain. So um, the focus on American art was really about making sure that I had a coherent case for sociological analysis. Um, But, you know, When I think about how what I learned from studying American art over a century, I will say that the disputes that people have about what counts are more interesting to me than any single definition. So we see, for example, as American ballet is taking off in the beginning of the 20th century and starting to build what few audience members and performers exist, uh, they debated a lot, you know, is it Does it matter if the dancers were born in America? Does it matter if the choreographer was born in America? Does it matter if the subject matter of the ballet is about American themes? And these are all ways in which people who are trying to define ballet are defining it in dialogue with what it means to be American. And, you know, they're not that different than the debates we see in public uh, discussions nowadays, does it matter if you're born here? Does that make you American? Is it about your life experiences? Is it about the way in which you live your life? These are uh, these transcend the arts as important questions.
0: It's, it's also, I guess, a story about institutions as well. And kind of early on in the book, you, you try and get to grips with the way that um, building particular institutions is a crucial part of the story of these um, definitional questions about how we draw boundaries around uh, this unique American art, um, to to, to sort of use that phrase. And I suppose the really obvious one uh, comes from a, I suppose it's now a a kind of a a great work of the sociological canon, which is uh, DiMaggio's study of how uh, elite cultures coalesced in in, in Boston. And and that, I think, is is, is really crucial, actually. Not so much kind of in the retelling, but the way you take... um, I suppose it's a line of a kind of elitism versus populism story um, and and how some things were sort of carved out as being worthy of elite attention and and some things weren't.
1: Yeah, so I would say that Paul's essay is very much a a contemporary classic. Um, It's got to be one of the most cited pieces written in the last 50 years. And um, his argument is instrumental to the way that I think about Um, this transformation of, you know, one of the ways that I tell the story of the book is that it's a study of how all of this stuff that's entertainment or vernacular culture or household objects transforms almost like alchemy into art by the end of the 20th century. So that now we have museums that show motorcycles and fashion and design objects. And, and I wanted to understand why, that's the world we live in now, given that the first century in our country, we spent really trying to create a mirror image of the classical arts as they existed in Europe. And, and that's really where DiMaggio's intervention is, is the moment at which we start to literally embed in American soil American arts as distinct from these other forms of culture. Because of course, you know, before the 1830s, there really was very few, there were very few distinctions between, you know, classical music performances and say, people getting on stages doing animal noises. You'd find that in the same venue on the same night. So that's obviously not the world we have now. And and DiMaggio says essentially that this small group of elites in Boston created both organizations, brick and mortar places where only certain kinds of culture was presented. And they created institutions, ways of thinking about what culture is, ways of talking about what art is. Um, And yeah, I think that one of the things that we overlook that's very much there in his work is that the story is about the actions of elites, but their concerns extended beyond others in their station, as it were. They had explicitly educational objectives. Now, you might argue that they were interested in educating the public, and in fact, Paul DiMaggio does, argue that they were interested in educating a new immigrant public that they wanted to assimilate into American culture, that there was a kind of paternalistic impulse behind the Boston elite's you know institution building, but the truth is, is that that's an incomplete story. They also created these institutions so that they would be free to the public at least some of the week. Um, they created programs that were designed to uh, communicate great works of art to the broadest possible uh, public. They created um, lectures and classes for amateurs and tours and wall labels. Um, access for school children. And of course, they decided to create these organizations as nonprofit organizations, which in the United States means that they have a lower tax burden and they're exchanging that lower cost for operation for the ability or the the, um, opportunity to serve as an educational institution. All of the arts organizations in the U.S. that have nonprofit status are given that on the basis of being educational organizations. So, yeah, I argue that, you know, this process of art making in the United States is really a dialogue between an impulse towards plurality and diversity and towards closure and elite control. It's both.
0: And, I mean, uh, an interesting example, almost on the the other side of this story, because it comes primarily from the state rather than sort of, uh, a wealthy elite class, although you know we can talk about the extent to which the, the state represents a wealthy elite class, uh, but still has that, uh, I guess, kind of um, sense of, of educational uh, and maybe populist elements is the Works Progress Administration, which is set up during the Depression. And it probably is a bit of a spoiler in the book to say, I got the impression you are a big fan of this. <laughs> um, actually, it's, it's one of the, maybe the single most important things that happens to um, not just institutionalize, but also to to legitimize a sense of American art.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I I mean, I I hope that I make clear in telling the story that the Works Progress Administration, and in particular, the, the five programs associated with arts and culture, they, they did exclude and they did harm. I mean, African-American creators were particularly unlikely to get the support of the federal government. So these were not um, truly democratic organizations in the way that we might hope to see them. However, they really did more than any single other cultural policy to make culture in its most broad and diverse formulation not only ex- accessible to the American public, but virtually ubiquitous in our experience. I mean, if you had gone into a post office, almost literally in any state in the country in the 1930s, you would likely see a new large work of art on the walls of that post office or that courthouse, any federal or state building that was specifically created using these government monies to depict events, people, organizations in your own community. So the WPA, as much as it supported, you know, famous artists like Jacob Lawrence or Dorothy Reese, they also, Dorothea Lang, sorry, uh, they also really helped to make art accessible to the everyday American. There were art schools in virtually every large city in the country and many small ones as well, free art schools where you could go to learn how to write, how to paint, how to draw, how to sculpt, how to dance. I mean, this is for contemporary Americans, a completely foreign concept. And yet it is really the foundation of American art in this country.
0: And it also has this, I guess, kind of long arm is is the phrase you use in in the book, I think. This longer historical legacy that in, in some ways is still with us now.
1: Very much so. I mean, a lot of the works still exist and are still circulated. Um, there were even more aggressive efforts to circulate them in the, the period after the wars. Um, so the as I argue in the book, this long arm is characterized, of course, by the positive influence it had on artists who were able to sell their work or begin their careers or find patrons under the auspices of the WPA or the state programs. And the artworks circulate. But one of the things that interests me a lot is the ways in which it impacted the organization of art and the institutions of art. So speak to those separately. It obviously influenced the organization of art in that the administrators of these programs, and and please remember, there are not only the five divisions and the people that work for those, but the states were providing matching funds. And so there were administrators of these funds for artists at every state level. And all of those people, you know, had the potential to continue on careers in the arts. And many of them did and came to run some of the most important art institutions in America, like MoMA or the, the Newark museum of art and those individuals in building their careers as arts administrators were also bringing with them the institutions that had been developed in the WPA boardrooms so notions that vernacular art that um you know photographs new media that these things are part of the mission of any arts organization these were at the time radical ideas and it was the wpa administrators who disseminated them across the country
0: yeah and, and the middle part of the book is actually a really great case study on on that struggle uh, i think over legitimacy and Institutions that now we sort of take for granted as as, as almost very, very elite places, like uh, you, you mentioned, MoMA. But I, I suppose what one of the things the book does is it's not solely focused on what we might think of as kind of uh, formal art forms, whether it's theatre or visual arts. Also, you do engage, and I've referenced this or gestured towards it a couple of times, with things that we, we do think much more about as, as American art forms. And the later half of the book um, has a range of different case studies, film, jazz, graffiti, comic books, um, that it talks through as, as um, both becoming legitimate, institutionalised in various different ways, but also in relation to where we started, which was this discussion about... Uh, elite tastes and maybe if we take film or or, or jazz and I'll sort of leave that up to you to tell this story about how opportunities emerge how there are kind of um, individuals who are entrepreneurial um, and how these particular art forms become really the the favoured expressions of, of elite taste.
1: Yeah. So your question is about the, the as you say, in the sort of middle part and the second half of the book, I focus a lot on these, um, these styles of cultural work that became legitimized in the second half of the 20th century. And I, I want to just for a moment point out how big that turn is, because, you know, by 1950, you could go into arts institutions and see pretty much what you would have seen in the 1920s. And when you go into arts institutions in 1980, you see something very, very different. In fact, the 1980s is when we had this, our huge first international blockbuster show, which was uh, Tutankhamun's uh, tomb, the tour of those archaeological remains. And, and that there is interesting in and of itself because the distinction between, let's say, what is an anthropological curiosity a mummy, for example, and what is an art object, a sarcophagus, for example, um, it becomes possible to distinguish those two things from one another, even if they're contained within the same object. This is how sophisticated we become in being able to, at the level of the object, distinguish between something that is art and something that is not art, but some other type of object. And so when we think about jazz or graphic novels, these forms that were legitimated in the second half of the 20th century, we want to really be thinking about how individuals, institutions, and groups promoted the artistic status of some objects within that category over others. And there are a bunch of conditions that facilitate this. Right. So by 1950 in the United States, we have an enormous generation of of first time college students, first generation college students as a result of the GI Bill, which allowed uh, those who had been in the services to go to college for reduced or no tuition cost. And uh, we correspondingly had a wave of new kinds of academics coming into the academy as some of those first-generation students went on to get PhDs or terminal degrees and then teach. And those folks, the, the students and the faculty in these rapidly diversifying campuses, as, as the co-ed movement took full force in the 70s, they are bringing with them an interest in new kinds of topics, new forms of study. And so, for example, that generation of students uh, filled the halls of the early classrooms that were teaching jazz history and performance. And as faculty started to write scholarly texts about comics, they started to teach those. And, And being on a curriculum in a university, having your cultural form included in a course, especially like a great books course or a general education course, this is the you know, of having achieved artistic legitimacy. Um, this is knowledge that is worth being cataloged and taught. Uh, there are, of course, revolutions in technology that really help. And I don't mean the internet. I mean, most of this transformation is happening pre-internet. And so the technologies that are really relevant here are things like long play albums um, and uh, technologies that allow you to see culture at a distance, like mass photography, um, and uh, magazines and book publishing, which were able to create global networks to transfer the same information almost instantaneously across the globe. So technology plays a really important role as well. I think I already spoke about the role of of uh, government regulation, but there are also industry regulations, and, and this ends up being really important in both comics and film as producers themselves in response to complaints about, you know, having content that is socially objectionable, they moved to create internal regulations so that they could regulate themselves instead of being subject to, say, state censorship. So these things also impact what culture is getting made and how that culture is being talked about, how the field is seen um, so all of these kind of, I call them opportunity structures in the book, contribute to this flowering of um, artistic diversification and valorization or legitimacy in the second half of the 20th century.
0: Now, in the hands of, uh, not, not to have a go at economists, but in the hands of an economist, like, you know, a sort of maybe someone like Tyler Cowen, his Impraise Praise of Commercial Culture book, this is where the book would end. And it would be this great celebration of... Uh, the flowering of, uh, of these American art forms, and you know, and how everything turned out all right in the end. But obviously, you know, not just as a sociologist, but as someone who wants to make a series of critical interventions, you want to tie this to the role of elites and this idea that this um, presence in the literature, and you gestured towards it quite early on in our conversation, that these new American art forms have allowed elites. Um, or perhaps you know, are bound up with an elite project of looking open, cosmopolitan, looking as if you know they're just like quote unquote the rest of us, and yet it hides their kind of elite status. Uh, and and I guess the kind of the final third of the book is about this this struggle. Um, and one really sort of obvious um, thing to think about is this idea about cultural appropriation. So I wonder if you could sort of unpack that term for me because obviously it's very current and very uh, controversial but particularly how it relates to a kind of an elite project uh, of this cosmopolitanism ism, but not elitism
1: yeah the answer to your question kind of stretches back to um, you know at the very beginning of our conversation when I was talking about my own reflections on my status as a white woman studying rap music in graduate school you know I think that they I'm very sympathetic to this, uh, I am in fact myself an elite person, I have a PhD, I work at an Ivy League institution, I've had a very advantaged life. I am myself benefiting from the kinds of act- access that uh, arguably lead to cultural appropriation. You know, we can think about cultural appropriation as being um, in dialogue with uh, cultural appreciation and you know, a lot of what's going on in arts institutions is they're including this new culture is, is very genuine appreciation of this material that can now be legitimately presented within the walls. I mean, uh, I teach in an arts administration program and not a single one of my students intends to go into work in the arts field with the purpose of shutting out other people or of presenting, uh, you know, elite culture, quote unquote. They're all interested in beautiful things and interesting things that provide us with critical lenses on our own experience and the experience of others. I mean, that genuine cultural appreciation, I would argue is there woven throughout this story, but, you know, we also need to think about the consequences of these decisions. So as we are, for example, um, taking work from Zambia, in order to be able to show the art of Zambia in our, you know, beautiful cathedrals of culture, uh, we have to recognize that we are taking it out of its place of creation, that we are still endowed as the, as the programmers with the right and opportunity to choose what we celebrate of someone else's culture. And often we are modifying it in the process of providing it to our viewers so, you know, the consequences are that it might be misinterpreted. It's certainly displaced from its, the community where it was created and not, no longer available for those people to enjoy. And uh, we may have completely distorted its original intention. You know, one of the, the things that my ethnomusicology friends worry quite a bit about is that the previous generation of musicologists and music scholars have recorded an awful large number of sacred songs that were not intended for anybody but consecrated members of a particular community to hear. And in recording them, they make them available for any number of people who have not gone through initiation rites or lived within community and earned the opportunity to hear that music or that song. And, uh, you know, the same, the same sort of insight applies to many other things that are within our, uh, programs, our artistic programs at present. So, You know, oftentimes uh, when I'm trying to, when a student comes to me and says, you know, is my appreciation of X, Y, and Z cultural appropriation, my sort of quip is that, of course, cultural appreciation is what people like us do, and cultural appropriation is what people like them do, because it's gotten this um, status as such a a pariah uh, activity what I'm trying to do in the book is show the ways in which it's deeply implicated in every single decision that our arts administrators are making or viewers are making when they go into an encyclopedic collection, they are implicated in the process of displacing objects. And, uh, and so that's, you know, I'm trying to get people to think more deeply about those dynamics uh, in those later chapters in the book.
0: Is there anything that will resist this? Is there a, cultural form that could never be art? Is there a, um, a limit to uh, what elite projects will appropriate? Or actually, um, is the story you've told really something that um, it could happen to any in- innocent cultural form, uh, that it could be um, you know, both celebrated on the one hand, but also uh, folded into um, an, an elite project of display?
1: It's a great question. And, you know, it, it asked me to sort of hypothesize. So I, I want my, my answer to be taken in that spirit because we're projecting about the future on the basis of the past and the past may not be prologue to what happens next. I mean, one of the things that we've seen happening uh, in recent years is that uh, creator communities have become much more skilled in uh, co-producing the process of their work being uh, introduced to Cosmopolitans. So the, the book example that I focus on is the, the Museum of Native American Art that's just been created as part of the Smithsonian family of muse- museums in Washington, D.C. And, and there, the, the funders, the creators, the staffers have all been very sensitive to the issues of displacement and caretaking and ritual and community space and designed that organization in dialogue with community. And that form of new museology is is very popular at present as a way to address concerns about cultural appropriation. But your question was also about whether um, anything can be sort of, that's maybe about an example of resistance to the capitulation into cultural appropriation. But can any forms in and of themselves resist it? I mean, it's possible. And in the book, I suggest that, Good example of this might be Kitsch. Um, It is a category that's defined in its opposition to art. And so it seems like a likely candidate to resist the artification process. Um, And the further that you go into thinking about Kitsch and people have very different definitions of this, but I think indisputably, Thomas Kincaid, the painter of light is uh, the premier American creator of Kitsch, certainly the most successful and uh, in the book, I talk about the, the comparisons between his work and John Constable. I mean, the the difference between kitsch and real painting is not reducible to some aesthetic element, um, particularly now that fine artists are working in very humble materials. So instead, we really need to be thinking about the role of discourse, of talk about art and how it creates Uh, facilitates cultural appropriation, facilitates cultural appreciation, or in the case of Kitsch, facilitates an absolute uh, abjuring of artistic status. No matter how hard Thomas Kincaid would have tried in his lifetime, uh, I I would argue it would have been impossible for him to be seen as an artist.
0: I mean, it it seems a bit unfair to ask. So what are you doing next, given the very long gestation of of this book that goes back uh, to some of your, your earliest work? Um, but is, is you know, this kind of question of kitsch something you might do next, or are you going to do something completely different around sociology of culture and sociology of elites?
1: It's a great question. You know, I am I am still a couple of weeks away from this book even being officially published. And so it does seem like mm, maybe uh, my next big project is still in the gestation phase. But one of the things I've been working on with a colleague in France, actually, Uh, Leonie Hano is a a study of the the work lives of artists. You know, I I mentioned earlier that I've become very interested in the WPA administrators and the ways in which their careers carried a bunch of ideas forward. Um, The truth is, is that we, we have very bad information on labor dynamics within the arts, in part because it's such a big and diverse category, but also because you know, nationally collected statistics, uh, you know, that information is gathered at such a broad level. So we have a very good survey of American and Canadian arts graduates, and uh, about 34,000 people uh, told us that they worked in more than one occupation. And so we have been using all the information they gave us about all the jobs that they work to try and come up with a theory of what we're calling poly-occupationalism. Basically, why and when do creative people acquire a couple of jobs? And you know, we talk about this all the time, the, the rise of the gig economy. And the truth is, is that because the surveys are not capturing multiple occupations, we, we know very little about this. So we're excited to, to share with the world some some original information soon.